Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. We are in our last week of this series, Backyard Pilgrim, and some of you have been following along in the book and others haven't been able to, but the sermons have covered a lot of the ground. Um, and this week, Father Canlis kind of asks us to accompany Jesus in his passion, in his, um, in his death, ultimately, and in the crucifixion. Um, but this morning, the theme especially is going to be around baptism. What does it mean to share in his death, to be baptized into his death and into his life and the resurrection? Some of you were, were at the healing journey, a couple of you. This is going to be a little redundant, so warning for you. This is um, adopting my sermon from the healing journey. Now, I will say that some of you, you know, you have a favorite song, and you listen to it on repeat, like how many times in a month? 100, maybe? Maybe more? Jenny, I drive Jenny nuts with that sometimes, is I'll latch onto a song and just put it on over and over and over again, like how many times? This is one of those songs that we need to hear again and again and again, because it's, it's the gospel. And so some of you, if you're hearing it for a second time, I hope it just goes that much deeper, and it just sort of hums in the background of your life, reorients your life around the gospel. So I'm going to begin just by inviting you into a little bit of my journey um, to sort of believe what I'm sharing with you all this morning, which is this, that, that you are beloved, that you are beloved beyond imagining. Um, my struggle to believe this began, as many of our wounds do, in the haunted halls of middle school. Can I get an amen from anyone? Anyone? Some of you, some of you were great. You loved middle school, but I was the new kid. As far as I could tell, my new peers in small town Iowa didn't know what a Kansas City was. And I didn't know what an Iowa was either until I moved there. And I, I knew in my mind it was like an involved corn. I was right about that, but that's all I knew. Um, when I would fly in and out of Iowa, Des Moines, the stewardess would be like, I, they would always mispronounce De, Des Moines. They'd be like, Des, Des Moines, Idaho, you know? No, it's Iowa. But anyways, I moved to small town Iowa, middle of nowhere. And Mike also moved to small town Iowa around the same time I did from out of town. He was a new kid. He was big and he was funny and he was confident and I was small and I was hyper and I was a little bit insecure. And my first vivid memory of interacting with my corn-fed peers um, came at a, a youth group camping trip, actually. And um, somehow making fun of me had just become like a chant. You can't make this stuff up. But I remember six kids walking in front of me, 20 feet ahead of me. We were on our way to go to a fishing pond, and they were chanting, down with Kaloji, that's me, up with Mike, down, you laugh, John, <laughs> down with Kaloji, up with Mike. They were chanting it. Um, and you know, like, it's just kids being kids. It's silly. It's not that big a deal. Okay. But that night, I sat in a circle around a campfire with those kids, and our youth, our youth pastors, he read Matthew 3.17, and he's like, you know, these words of Jesus are also words for you and for me. You all are his beloved sons, and on you his favor rests. And if my actual eyes didn't roll, I know like my whole being rolled its eyes at that moment because I was not feeling beloved. I was feeling like I didn't want to be with these people or be hearing these words. In the years that followed, and some of you can relate, all of you can relate to some degree, whether it was kind of middle school bullying or something worse, instances of rejection, um, they can bite like, like, like a snake in the grass, and they can poison your sense of identity. You know, at, at our lowest points, when we believe these lies, we can sink into self-hatred and not loving ourselves and believing we're defined by what other people are saying about us. And so the snake is smart. 
Because he knows that if he can disease, disease the heart of the body, as with our physical bodies, then the whole, the whole body will be poisoned. And so the snake attacks our identity more than anything else. It was his tactic in, in Eden. Think about Adam and Eve. They were not you know, tempting them to believe they weren't beloved children of a good God who was going to give them good gifts, but they were the withholding um, slaves of a withholding master. They were the servants of a withholding master who didn't want them to have the good, the good fruit, you know. It was his tactic in the wilderness with Jesus, as we read about this morning. He was uncoiling to attack Jesus around his sense of identity. If you are the Son of God, he hissed. And so that's the question this morning is, who are you? What comes to mind when you think about your own identity and how you think about yourselves? Um, your sense of identity is going to be pumping in health into your life and your relationships, or it's going to be the epicenter of disease for you. Your sense of identity, if it's secure, you're going to be a blessing, giving away. If it's insecure, you're going to be more like a vortex, taking and exploiting and using people and those around you to try to fill your, your own sense of identity up. Well, this morning I want to share um, Henry Nouwen's goal in his book, Life of the Beloved. He says, my only desire is to make these words reverberate in every corner of your being. You are beloved. You are beloved. And so I want to look at this through three movements. First, I want to look at our insecure identity, which I've started to talk about, and then Christ's secure identity, and then finally, our identity in, in Christ. So now, if I find my marker, oh, here it is, I think. Did I put it in here? Hmm. Oh, I think I put it in the basket up here. Otherwise, we'll just use the first survey. Yeah, here it is. So here is your life plotted. <laughs> so for me, this is 1983. And who knows? Over here. So we have this much time. Along the way, the question is, who are you? Who are you? Now, now one takes us through and he says that some people, and many of us, live by the answer, I am what I do. And so when I do good things, I'm good. And when I do bad things, I'm bad. So when I have success, I'm feeling good about myself. When I fail, I'm feeling bad about myself, and that's who I am. You know, I'm in good shape, I perform, I achieve, I'm great. Um, maybe you're looking back on your life. I have trophies, I have good children, uh, I have degrees, I'm loved. But if I look back and I see a litany of failures, I'm not. And the second thing he says is we're defined maybe by what others say or what, what they do. So if my performance review at work is good, then I'm up here. And if it's not, I'm down here. Um, we could say, you know, when my sermon is well-received, I'm loved. When it's not, I'm not. Um, or maybe what others do to me. When I'm served by others, I'm important. When I suffer at the hands of others, then I'm broken, maybe even abandoned. Or third, and lastly, maybe I am what I have. And so, you know, when I get a new house, the, the house of my dreams, I'm up here. Or when I make a bad financial decision and I lose a bunch of savings, I'm down here. Or when my performance, uh, when I, well, I'm an American, I'm healthy, I have safety, I have comfort, or I don't. And I'm defined by either what I have or about what I don't have. So now one takes a look at this and he says, this is how many people live their lives and they just spend all their, their emotional energy and their physical energy trying to get above the line. And then they call that surviving. And then they die. And that is not who you are. You're not the high points on this trajectory, and you're not the low points. So who are you? 
I know you're tempted to think and to believe I am what I do, I am what others say, I am what I have, because man, I am. I preached this sermon three weeks ago, and I feel like the last two weeks, like I've just completely forgotten this. Like I've been living not in this at all, and I need to hear it again. I need to hear it this morning. I know you do too, because we so easily, so easily begin to define ourselves by these things, and we just ride this wave up and down. Well, look now at Jesus' secure identity. Look at as the tempter comes to him in the desert. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. In other words, do something. Show your power. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. He'll command his angels. Think about the reputation. Imagine what people will say. Even angels wait on him. Kneel in front of me, and I will give you everything. You will have everything. Then you will be loved. So do you see the implication? Jesus says, that's a lie. I know who I am, and I know who my Father is. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Can you tell me what words had just been spoken from the mouth of God? We read them this morning. You are my beloved son. And so these words, they, are, they were reverberating in his being as he goes out into the wilderness and fasts. And that's his bread, the beloved words of his beloved father. And so he's free. He's free to not take and take and, and, and um, exploit and use his power in unhelpful ways. He's free to just give and to serve and to bless. And finally, to even endure temptation and torture on the cross without losing his own sense of identity. And so just a quick reminder, if Jesus' hunger and his vulnerability and his poverty was not a signal of the Father's neglect, then neither is yours. So don't interpret the lows of life as being abandoned by God. We'll get to that in a minute. Have you heard him call you the beloved? Really? Because those words are words. They are words for you. Those words to Jesus are words for you. And not because it just sounds good or makes us feel better or, you know, because it's true. And the rest of the sermon, I'm going to make a case for it being true. So having looked at our insecure identity, Christ's secure identity, let's look finally at our identity in Christ. Who, who are you? Well, taking this passage as our guide and our baptisms this morning, and Father Canlis this week in Backyard Pilgrim brought, brings us through the temptation and baptism of Christ and says the very things I'm saying, I want to look first at baptism. Who are you? Begin the answer with your baptism. You know, in, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus begins here with baptism, and then Matthew 28, what happens? Go into all nations, doing what? Baptizing them. Of all the things he could have said, baptizing them. Why is baptism so important to Jesus? Well, first, why is Jesus baptized? It is fitting to fulfill all righteousness, we read. Well, what does that mean? You know, Jesus could have been up here in the front calling on sinners to repent like John the Baptist, but instead he's down there with the sinners identifying with them undergoing a baptism of repentance. Why? Because Jesus was beginning to make himself one with us in a process that would eventually lead to him so identifying with our sin that he even dies as one of us. Here's an illustration for this that has always stuck with me. I heard it many years ago, and I like it especially because it's a little Anglican flair, English history. In November of 1878, there was a, a deadly diphtheria epidemic that was sweeping through the town where Princess Elizabeth and her husband and her children, Marie and Ernest, were staying. And this royal family had taken a strict quarantine, as we all are well familiar with. They were in the same big house, but in different rooms, trying to keep each other safe. But then finally, upon the news that her daughter, Marie, had succumbed to the disease and passed, 
the Princess Elizabeth could no longer restrain herself and could no longer stay in quarantine. And so she flew to her son's room, Ernest's, Ernest's room, and she smothered him in love and embraced, it, embraced him and comforted him in kisses. And then within a few days, she contracted the disease. And within a few weeks, she had, she had passed. So why was Jesus baptized? To embrace us, to identify with you. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, I feel like I quote this like every Sunday now, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, in him, circle it, underline it, highlight it, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's why Jesus was baptized. Now, why, were we, why are we baptized? Why did we baptize these children this morning, and why were you baptized? Baptism is, has been called the sacrament of, of union. Through faith and baptism, we answer Christ's embrace with our open arms, and we finally, in that embrace, are united with Christ. And this question of backyard pilgrim, of like, where are you? God is asking, where are you to Adam and Eve? And they're hiding, and they're lost. And then finally, the incarnation, Jesus comes, and he's found as one of us. This is finally the answer that the scriptures give to the question, where are you? When you are joined to Christ through faith and baptism, the question is answered. You are no longer hiding. You no longer are lost. You are found in Christ as his beloved children once again. So how does this work? How are we united with Christ in baptism? Romans 6.3 says we're united in his death. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into his death. What does that mean? You've been baptized into his death. You have all lived through moments that have attacked your sense of belovedness, moments of death in your life. Now, I always, it's like, I never know how much to share about this, if I'm sharing too much or too little, but in this theme of the beloved son and moments of death, I can't help but go there to May 19th, 2021, 10 a.m., when a stranger attacked Levi in front of my house, my four-year-old son at the time. And I remember the, the muffled scream from the window, and I look out the window, and I just can't process what my eyes were looking at. It was just this total disconnect. And this large man was assaulting my four-year-old boy, and his little frame was under this large frame, and he was kicking and resisting. And I raced to intervene, and it's a happy ending. I was able to intervene, and Levi is okay. And when I tell the story, I know that it is so natural to think of the silver lining, of like, he's okay, you got to come to the rescue. And that is true. It is really cool and wonderful to have like rescued my son in this really tender, fatherly way. Well, aggressive way. It's also true that this is where I'm getting emotional this week as I think about the many in, in, in Israel and in Palestine, the many parents um, who weren't able to rescue their children. And their kids weren't just left with bruises, but with a burial, or not even a burial, but just loss. Tragedy and trauma, but, but no silver lining at all. But nevertheless, for the following weeks, even despite the silver lining, all I could feel like in my bones was like, was angry at God and frustrated and, you know, forgotten, really, abandoned by God. I don't know if you've ever felt that. You've suffered something so hard and so difficult and your whole being is just like, well, where was God? And you're just angry. And so in my anguish, I thought, so much for being the beloved child of God. My family and I are just kind of an afterthought of God. He has better things to do than to keep us safe. But then I was trying to put together a sermon for Trinity Sunday here some weeks later, and I, the sense of anger and trauma was still like buzzing in my body. And I was lashing out at God in prayer while I was trying to preach a sermon on John 3.16, or prepare a sermon on John 3.16 for Trinity Sunday. 
And I remember my, my almost, my exact, if I didn't write this down, this is what my soul was saying. God, I had to race to intervene because you didn't. You didn't stop it. You let this happen. I was being, I was, you know, you did nothing. I didn't know if I was about to die on my way to intervene or if Levi was about to die. All I had to know, I just had to stop it because you didn't. I had to put my life on the line because you, and that's when John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And the trail of the scripture goes all the way back to its origins in Genesis 22, to Abraham and his near sacrifice of his beloved son, Isaac. Can't you just, when Isaac asks his father, where's the sacrifice? I see the wood and the fire. The Lord himself will provide my son. Now, if we know anything, we know that no father should ever be asked to sacrifice his son. Know that this story is not about parenting. It's not about morality. It's not normal. The point is God's provision, that God is going to graciously provide a sacrifice for his people. And as I pondered all this, I thought, you know, like Isaac, my, my beloved son Levi was saved and spared. But Jesus is more innocent than Isaac. Jesus is more meek than my own child. Jesus is the uniquely beloved son of God. And think about it. As the knife was falling in the Abraham story, the voice of God stays the execution. But as the knife fell on Christ, the beloved son of all creation, no voice stayed the execution. And instead, he was slaughtered as the spotless lamb. But before he was, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that question is answered by Hebrews 12 too. Why have you forsaken me? For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. What was the joy set before him but, but you and I? You were the joy set before him. You and the redemption of all things. You were the joy in the heart of God that compelled him to choose the cross. You and me and all your sons and daughters and all who are far off. And I'm telling you, as I ponder this, I just, I, I want you to know, parents, you felt it. The power, the power of a parent's love. As a father who was able to intervene, I'm telling you, there, there is nothing I have ever felt that was more powerful than the love that sent me to rescue my son. Nothing could have restrained me, nothing. But there was an eternal plan in the heart of God that the son would choose to be forsaken, to not be spared. A love more powerful. The son would choose to be forsaken so that you would not be. And when we insist, this is, this is when we insist that our own brokenness defines us, our own shortcomings, our own failures, our own valleys on this, when, when those things come to define us more than the love of God and of being in Christ, we have shown that we have come short, very short of understanding just the, the fierceness of the love of God for you, the tenacious, unstoppable never-ending love of God for you. And so that's why in Ephesians 3, we have to pray for strength to even comprehend it. Because I'm telling you, I can't. I can't comprehend a love more powerful. So we have to pray, grasp how, how wide, how high, how long, how deep is the love of Christ. We need his grace even to just begin to even get it. And on the cross, the beloved son was utterly rejected and victimized and abused, not bruises, but a burial. 
And so the scriptures say, beloved, children of God, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So being baptized into his death means more than this, but it means at least this. God has suffered and suffers with you. You are beloved beyond imagining. The poem, I I return to this poem time and time again, Jesus of the Scars, says, to our wounds only God's wounds can speak, and not a God has wounds but thou alone. So sometimes all we have to bring is like our, our wounding, our sense of inadequacy, our sense of failure, our sense of shame, our sense of being wounded, and it's there that God's wounds speak to us. And he says, I'm with you in this, and it doesn't define you. So we've not only been baptized and united to him in his death, also in his resurrection. Romans 6 goes on to strike a much more hopeful note. Romans 6, 4, we who were buried with him will also rise with him. We'll also walk in newness of life, just as Christ was raised from the dead. Now, you all know that everything turning out okay doesn't erase the pain, but it does help. It does help us endure if you're enduring something difficult. When at Jesus' baptism, we read the heavens were rent, and that word rent sends us to Isaiah 64, when the heavens are rent open and the kingdom of heaven comes down. And so we're supposed to see in this moment of Jesus' baptism, the heavens being opened and the kingdom is beginning to come. And in the end, the kingdom means all things will be made well. He's begun it. It isn't complete. And so for now, the inadequacy, the shame, the failures, things others have done to you or said to you, they are real and they hurt, but his resurrection is a guarantee that what he has begun, he will complete. And he will finally make everything sad come untrue. And I love the way that that's put. Um, it's from Tolkien originally. Because it's not like everything sad is going to stop. Everything sad is going to come untrue. It's going to, in other words, be redeemed. How? I don't know. But not only will suffering and tears stop, but that suffering and tears, will, well, here's how, here's how Sam puts it in Lord of the Rings. Frodo and Sam are marching to Mordor to their inevitable death. And you might see this as sort of an illustration of Jesus in the wilderness being tempted. Because the whole story is about Frodo being tempted to put on the ring and take up and, and use it as everyone else wants to use it. To dominate, to have power, to have wealth, to have everything. And so he's resisting the temptation as Jesus was in the wilderness. And Sam speaks this great hope. He says, in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when, the sun, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. You know how you can have like 50 days of sunshine, and on day 50, you're just like, yeah, it's great, it's sunny. But if you have a giant storm, and then right after the storm, it's sunny, you're like, this is brilliant, this brilliant glow, and everything's warm and beautiful. That's the idea, that as the darkness passes, the sun's going to shine out the clearer. So not only will things stop being sad, they're going to come untrue. It's going to be brilliant. It's going to be even better. Not just returning to Eden, but getting to what's even better than Eden. And so Sam says, folk in those stories, they had lots of chances of turning back, but they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. In the films, Frodo says, what, what are we holding on to, Sam? And Sam says that there's some good in this world and it's worth fighting for. So Sam, is it's almost as if he's drawing on this deep well of his secure identity. He knew who he was, that he was on the side of good, that good was worth fighting for, that good is going to win out, that darkness will pass and light will dawn. And so rephrased in light of this story, he might have said this, we hold on to the fact that we are the beloved children of a good God who will, in the end, put all things right that he's watching over every step of our lives, every peak and every valley, and assuring us he's with us and he's going to make it all right and everything's going to be okay and all will be well. 
And that helps us to endure, doesn't it? So, who are you? That's the question. Are you what you do? Are you what others say about you or have done to you? Are you what you have? If you think of yourself this way, you're going to put on the ring and you're going to assert power, you're going to assert yourself, you're going to build a rep, you're going to live for building a reputation, you're going to live for getting and hoarding love from others, for success, for wealth, for power, whatever it is. And in the end, it will enslave you, just like it did Gollum. But the Lord has a different word for you. If you are united to Christ through faith and baptism, you are his beloved. And this is the, this is, this is the answer, really, to this question of, of Eden. Where are you? Adam and Eve, where, where are you? Here we are, found in Christ, his beloved children, found through our union with him, together in death, together in resurrection. Now, I know, as I shared at the beginning, like, to believe this, to take it in, is different than up here. So for some of you, you're like, yeah, that sounds right. I need it to get here. Well, I'm with you. So I don't know what else to do but to pray that God helps us get it from here to here. So if you'd like to receive this blessing, I'm going to pray that you would be able to take this on as your identity more and more. I think it's a constant thing we're growing in. But here it is. If you'd like to receive it, just hold out your hands as a way of receiving this blessing. May your soul now, in quiet adoration, lay its head against the heart of love and absorb all that Jesus yearns to bestow. May his love draw out what is truest and best in you and shape all things in you toward wholeness. And may you receive his word, now spoken by the power of the Holy Spirit to you. You are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son. And in you, I am well pleased. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.